0: This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 5, Marxism. I think I ended by talking about something that the Polish poet Czesław Miłosz called the Hegelian bite. That thing about Hegelianism that was particularly seductive, that once it kind of caught people, It was very difficult to let go. Um, And you're reading, you've been reading for the past two weeks some of Isaiah Berlin's essays. Um, And Isaiah Berlin, who himself is from the former Russian Empire, talks about how kind of Russian intellectuals got drunk on Hegel. it may have been one thing for the Germans, but you give a little Hegel to the Russians and they never come back. And his Isaiah Berlin's thesis is that the really fatal import that moves the 20th century is not the import of Marxism to the Russian empire. It's the import of Hegelianism. Um, and I, I want you to appreciate what was seductive about Hegel, even before we kind of move on to Marx. <laughs> um, Okay, let me, um, let me say a couple words now about Marxism. Now that we are you know, a few decades after the fall of European communism. Um, so one of the pieces of advice, in fact, one of the best pieces of advice I got about teaching when I was coming out of graduate school and about to leave a postdoc in New York for my first teaching position at Indiana University. And one of the last conversations I I had was with my late friend, Tony Jett, who was one of the great historians of Europe um, and of the European 20th century, um, born after the war. And he said to me, he said, you know, when I started teaching in the late 60s, in the early 1970s, all of the students at universities wanted to know the same thing. They wanted to know how an idea, a philosophy, a worldview that was so brilliant and so beautiful, how did it go so wrong? You know, where was the mistake? How did it go so wrong? Everybody's laughing already. Um, He said, you're gonna get into the classroom and you'll have a completely different task. You will be facing young people who will wanna know how anybody could have been so stupid as to buy into such a ridiculous idea in the first place. And he said, until you can get the students to make that imaginative leap and understand what was so extraordinarily seductive to so many people across so much of the globe for so long, nothing else that happens in the 20th century will make any sense. You have to get them to make that leap and see what people saw then. See it as people saw it then. And that's not easy to do, looking back. This is always the challenge of history, right? You've got to kind of bracket that you know how things play out. You know what happens afterwards. And see if we can make that mental leap back and see what was so extraordinarily compelling. Not just to a couple freaks, but to huge numbers of people across all different social classes, all different racial and ethnic backgrounds, all different countries for a very long time. And I'm going to try to start to talk you through that today. You know, And hopefully, it will percolate. That doesn't mean that Marx was right, of course. <laughs> um, but what I want you to see is not so much was he right, was he wrong, but what was so forceful? What grabbed people? You know, what was it about this insight into how the world works that had such a hold on people for so long? Um, So let me go go back a little bit um, to Hegel, and I I took you very quickly through the master-slave dialectic, which is in some ways the most vivid illustration of the larger Hegelian point that everything is relational. Nothing can be kind of understood in isolation. From other elements, from other beings. Everything has meaning only in the context of the whole. The master is only the master in relation to the slave, and the slave is only the slave in relation to the master. Everything is always mediated, nothing is ever self identical. You know, this was that moment in the Barbie film where Ken is like, Who would I be, you know, if without Barbie? And Barbie's like, no, Ken is me. Just be yourself unto yourself. We'll come back to this with Simone de Beauvoir when we talk about the second sex. I'll go back to the Barbie movie. Um, But this, can you be who you are unto itself without this being mediated through relations with others? Um, so everything is relational, everything is mediated, meaning is only in the whole. The whole can only be seen at the end. Um, this idea of, of Alfhebel, history moves through clashes, it moves through antagonisms. Any given state of things contains within itself the seeds of its undermining. Just like the bud contains within itself the seeds of what's going to abolish the bud and turn into the fruit. That's how history moves. There's always a kind of both overcoming, abolishing, but also retaining, preserving in a higher synthesis, moving forward, moving up, unfolding. Um, Telos, this ancient Greek concept of telos, the idea that the end goal of a thing, the final product, is somehow already encoded at the beginning. So again, think of the apple seed metaphor. That eventual apple is already somewhere there in that apple seed. That apple seed is not going to turn into a plum. If you plant it, it's not going to give you a carrot. You know, if it's like in the best case scenario, you get your apple, but it can only be an apple. Like the fact that it's kind of set up to be an apple is there from the beginning, even when it's a seed that looks just like seeds that turn into very different things. So this idea of of, of telos, um, the fruit as the telos of the bud, the bud, the blossom to the fruit, these moments of an organic unity. Um, And Hegel uses this to say that the true and the false The universal and the particular cannot be reified. You're going to hear the word reify a lot, and we're going to talk about reification today. Reify is one of these fancy philosophical words that just means to turn something into a thing, to to kind of make it more thing-like, more concrete, more kind of thing-like unto itself. So, this, you can't kind of take true and false for Hegel and make each of them into some thing like firm, solid thing unto itself. Because they're always in a kind of relational mediated connection to one another. They can never be wholly separated from one another. Everything is always mutually implicated. Um, history is irreversible, there's no going back. You cannot unstorm the Bastille everything that does happen in some way should happen, because there's no real distinction for Hegel between the is and the ought, between fact and value. That he tries to think you to a place where you lose the desire to disentangle those two concepts. That's very hard to follow. I mean, it's very hard to accept, but that's what he's trying to think you to. And he speaks elsewhere about how history is is a slaughter bench at which all sorts of sacrifices are made to what is progress towards this eventual somewhat mystical telos. Um, This dialectical progression that is both always forward moving, onward and upward, but also has a cyclical element to it because of this repetition of the dialectic. So think of a spiral. You know, think of something that's both going in a spiral but also going in a direction, but in a kind of edgy, jumpy way, not at a steady pace, but in a sometimes slow and then a sudden leap. Okay. Um, History is unfolding, moving towards eventual reconciliation. So for Hegel, the telos, which is couched in these very abstract terms. And Marx is then going to turn around and make them very concrete terms. For Hegel, the telos is when subject and object, fact and value, freedom and necessity, all of the the being and thought, when all of those things come together in a seamless whole, now, what exactly that would mean concretely, it's a little vague for Hegel. Marx is going to tell you very specifically what it means. Um, there's a kind of longing in Hegel for wholeness. Everything gets kind of swept up and absorbed in the progress of the Geist towards telos. You know, and so there's part of the seduction is the directionality the sense that we're going somewhere and it's not just random and arbitrary, that we're kind of moving towards some goal, but part of it is the seduction of wholeness, that sense that everything ultimately goes together and makes sense, this overcoming of fragmentation, you know, and an association between alienation and fragmentation. So, all of these thinkers are preoccupied with the problem of alienation. For Hegel, alienation is going to often take the form of your failure to understand an individual existence in the context of the Geist. You know, to be separating yourself from the whole, there's a kind of alienation. To defy the forward motion of the spirit. Of the Geist to try to do that. It's for Hegel by definition to lose. So, what is is nice? What is subjectively good? This plays no role for Hegel. Um, So, you're going to, starting today, you're going to see this kind of preoccupation with the distinction between the subjective and the objective. And Marx is going to fetishize this. You're supposed to lose the desire for things to be otherwise when you understand the objective momentum of history. Subjective is essentially a pejorative term for Hegel. You know, and he's going to try to solve the free will versus determinism question through the paradox that liberty, freedom, is the recognition of necessity the self-identification with necessity, this embracing of the objective movement of history. Um, Isaiah Berlin says, you know, when you discover why everything is as it is, must be so, in the very act of understanding this, you will lose the desire for it to be otherwise. In order to overcome alienation, to be at one with the universe, we need to self-identify with history. So starting with Hegel, you get history with a capital H. You know, when you see history with a capital H, in German, by the way, all nouns are capitalized, so this gets a little ambiguous. Um, But in in English, history with the capital H is history in the Hegelian sense. It has a dialectical forward motion. It's its own phenomenon. Um, this, this alienation as the distance between subject and object is something intellectuals were really suffering over. How do you connect subject and object? The problem of the bridge, Hegel brings this all together. Um, he promises us reconciliation. Um, Hannah Arendt writes that Hegel's philosophy was either a residence or a prison for reality, it was in any case the last moment, she says, of Western philosophy in the sense of uniting being and thought, of attempting to reestablish that unity that had been broken by modernity. To reconstitute, Arendt says, a world now shattered into pieces to return to man a sense of being at home in the world. Okay, I'm going to keep coming back to Hegel throughout this course, but hopefully you're starting to get a little bit of an idea of what he was about. Okay, so now Marx is going to come along, and he's going to take various things from Hegel. One of is that Hegel, the, the most basic thing is that Hegel takes history, human history, seriously as a constitutive element of philosophy itself. The idea that philosophy should be Timeless and spaceless. He does away with that. History becomes constitutive, taking into account the passing of time and the development of these increasingly higher stages of human development. This forward motion, the spiral of the forward motion, this like this forward motion in leaps. Marx is also going to take from Hegel a certain kind of amorality, a certain sense of, there are none of these subjective ethical questions. Um, This obsessive distinction between the subjective that is bad and the objective that is good. The collapsing of the distinction between facts and values. What is good for Hegel is by definition that which wins and I'll I'll read you an Isaiah Berlin quote here. Um, The only thing for Hegel which is bad is to resist the world process, for the world process is the incarnation of reason. When Hegel says incarnation, he means it in the literal sense, and to oppose it is immoral. Therefore, he despises the utilitarians, the sentimentalist, the wooly, benevolent philanthropist, the people who want people to be happier, who wring their hands when they see the vast tragedies, the revolutions, the gas chambers, the appalling suffering through which humanity goes. These persons are, for Hegel, not merely contemptively blind to the movement of history, but positively immoral, because they resist that which is objectively good by pitting it against their subjective good. And subjective good is like subjective mathematics. It is absurd nonsense. So you can tell Isaiah Berlin really doesn't like Hegel. He thinks Hegel is a very dangerous thing. Um, But he's also very clear. I mean, he, he's a very clear analyst of Hegel, which is. So I, gi- I give you Isaiah Berlin on Hegel, not you know, to make you all into radical anti Hegelians, but because he's just, he explained so clearly some of these concepts. Um, okay. In fact, in Hegel, the determinism is less pronounced than the totality, because it's less that things are determined in advance and more that meaning only comes in retrospect when you can glean the whole. But this idea of totality, you can't understand one thing without understanding the whole. This is going to be central to Marx. You can't take things apart and understand them piecemeal. You have to understand how they all fit together. Um, Das vara ist das ganze, the true is the whole. You know, that is like the. The key moment in Hegel, this true is the hold. The seduction of wholeness and the ultimate promise of some kind of seamless integration where all contradictions, antitheses, and distinctions are somehow magically overcome. Okay, now we're going to jump ahead to Marx, who is almost 50 years younger. He was born in 1818. He's a philosopher. He's a political economist. He's a revolutionary. Uh, he comes from, he comes from uh, the Prussian Empire. He dies in London. He comes from a middle-class assimilated Jewish family, um, a long line of rabbis. I mention this because there will subsequently be a huge amount of literature devoted to Marx and the Jewish question, Marx as a self-hating Jew, Marx as an anti-Semite, you know, Marx as kind of overcoming his issues with his Jewishness. There's a big literature on this particular topic, association between Jews and capitalism, association between Jews and communism. I'm not going to go into that in any detail today, but th- this fact that Marx comes from a German-Jewish family is significant. Um, his father had agreed to baptism, um, in f- as in order to pursue a career as one of the most respected lawyers. Where he was, his father was also very much an Enlightenment figure who knew Voltaire by heart. So he's coming from, he's coming from a family that comes from a religious tradition, has now assimilated into a kind of secular philosophical culture. Very well educated. Um, When he's 17, he is studying at the Faculty of Law at the University of Bonn. Um, And he is then encountering these these young Hegelians, sometimes called left Hegelians, um, which are a kind of group of philosophers and journalists circling around, um, Ludwig Feuerbach and Bruno Bauer, who are taking in Hegel's methods, but opposing various of his conclusions. Um, in various of his interpretations. So this is going to be one of many times, and this will constantly come up here, in which there's some very important text, and then the very important interpretations that carry that text further depart in many ways from the intentions and the ideas of the author. That's how intellectual history moves. The person who writes the text never gets the monopoly on the interpretation. Intellectual history moves by understandings, misunderstandings, interpretations, counter interpretations. People take the parts they like. They reject the parts they don't like. They give their own spin to things. They change the definition of words a bit. You know, that's how it all moves. You know, so their texts are provocations to thought. Um, they're provocations to thinking. There's no li- loyalty to the text, necessarily. You know, It's pushing you to think. So, you know, so Hegel here is pushing these young Hegelians, and he's pushing Marx, but that doesn't mean that they are loyally adhering to what Hegel necessarily meant when he said X or Y. OK. Um, all right, so the, cre- the crucial thing here um, that the left Hegelians more generally, and Marx in particular, is going to take is that Hegel had the right idea about history being crucial, you know, about how history moves through dialectical progression, through antithesis, through antagonism, through conflict, um, through understanding everything as part of a whole, but Hegel was off in his metaphysical interpretations of all these things. You've got to take all this stuff that exists in the realm of the spirit, of the idea, um, of what is not concrete and material, and you've got to bring it down to earth. You've got to make it very concrete and very specific and very material. So the word material and materialism, you're now going to start to hear a lot. You know, Hegel has got, You know, Hegel talks a lot about dialectics. Marx is going to talk about dialectical materialism. Um, and you'll see right away from the contrast between reading Hegel and reading Marx, because everything that is very abstract in Hegel becomes very concrete and specific in Marx. OK. All right. Um, in 1843, Marx goes to Paris. Where he meets Friedrich Engels at the Café de la Regence. This is one of many stories in intellectual history where the fact that one person encounters another person changes everything that happens afterwards. You know, if they don't happen to meet at that cafe in Paris, if they never run into each other, you know, every all of modern history might well have been very different. <laughs> Um, there is an encounter between these two minds, and they become co-authors. And this will happen various times. You know, the person you happen to meet at the moment you happen to meet them, and there's some kind of, there's some kind of merger that goes on. This is, by the way, one reason why a lot of my friends talk about me as this kind of Jewish matchmaker figure, not necessarily for romantic purposes, but I'm always trying to like, set people up with other people because I'm like, you don't know. like It could be that we get those two people who are passing through Berlin at the same time, whose work I know, who are really interesting thinkers, enough coffee, maybe they'll come up with a way to save the world. You don't know, right? Like, maybe it's just all about the combination of minds in a given room with enough coffee, maybe some donuts, like, at the right time, and you don't know what will come from that. This is how intellectual history has always worked. I mean, we're going to find out later, you know, if Roman Jakobson doesn't mean Claude Levi-Strauss, you know, in New York, we don't get structural anthropology, like, everything. (laughs) Like, that... That has to happen. Okay. Anyway, 1843, um, 1844, they meet at the Café de la Régence. Okay. M- they keep going back to Hegel. For Marx, now, you know, coming, you know, 50 years after Hegel, um, the decisive factor for Marx in modern social behavior is industrialization. Now, the fact that Marx considers the decisive factor in, in modern social behavior to be industrialization is very much bound up with the fact that he is hanging out in Germany, in Paris, and then in London. You know, in fact, in the mid-19th century, the vast majority of the world is not industrialized. You know, even most of Europe is not industrialized. But where Marx happens to be He's in the midst of the Industrial Revolution. So what seems to him crucial is industrialization. And here is where we start talking, not about modernity in general, but about modernization. Modernization in a technical, concrete, empirical sense. These technical changes that are involved in industrialization. So there's technology. The technology enables you to build factories. It enables you to produce things much faster and on a larger scale than you could as an individual artisan, making whatever you're making, you know, building a cabinet or making shoes or being a tailor, these technological innovations that allow things to be produced on a large scale. Now, that also leads to changes in social structures. Because previously, we were in this world of feudalism, a kind of decentralized world. There may be a monarch somewhere, but that monarch doesn't necessarily have a kind of micro-reach into all these different villages. The vast majority of people were living in villages in the countryside. There were nobles. you know. There was a kind of noble class that inherits property and wealth. You know, and then they have you know, first serfs, and then once the serfs are liberated, they have peasants who often don't have conditions that are much better than serfs. You know, and the dominant social structure are the land-owning gentry and nobility you know, and the peasants who are actually working the land. Um, and they are living in the countryside, and they are tied to the land and to agricultural production and to the cycle of the seasons. Now, once you have factories, you're talking about people moving from the countryside into cities, because suddenly you need lots of people working in a factory, working in a building. You know, that changes the whole social structure. You need people who have built the factories. Um, that's going to be the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie is going to be a new middle class. You know, which, you know, Rousseau was the one who was talking about it in a kind of cultural existential sense as being very superficial and ostentatious and conformist. Um, But now Marx is going to say no, the bourgeoisie is different from the nobility. It's not about inheriting a title, it's not about inheriting wealth, it's about owning the factories and therefore being the employer. Being the employer who is employing people to work at your factory, you guys might remember that scene in Fiddler on the Roof, where um, the um, Perchik comes to teach Tevye's daughters, and he's telling the story of Jacob and Rachel, and saying, "Well, you know, see what the problem was. He was an employer." Um, So employer is this Marxist term now that's coming up. So now instead of nobles, gentry, and peasants, now you're going to have new social classes that are part of modernization because they involve urbanization. They involve going from the countryside into the city. And now the relevant social classes are no longer going to be the nobility and the peasantry. They're going to be the bourgeoisie and the proletariat meaning the people who own the factories and the people who are working for them, the employers and the employees. The proletariat are factory workers. They're urban workers. So together with all this comes changes in communications and transportations, movement from the countryside into the cities. And now, instead of people working the land and being connected to the process of production, of food, you like you sow the seed, and then you, you take care of the land, and you watch the plant grow, and then you harvest it at the end, and they're connected to this cycle. Now, suddenly, you are selling your labor by the hour in a factory. Not only that, but you're often doing something very repetitive because there's an assembly line functioning in the factory where people are doing one part of the production process. Um, which is different from if you're the shoemaker in a village and you're making the shoe, you're connected to the products of your production. You're you're creating that shoe from the beginning to the end. Now, you are going to be a laborer, a factory laborer in a factory in which you are beholden to these machines. You're making, you're facilitating the machines, which have a kind of dehumanizing effect, and you are selling yourself by the hour. And you're only participating in a part of the production process, so you're losing your connection with the holistic nature of the thing that you're producing. Okay, so we have these new classes. Um, The proletariat, the factory workers, are therefore alienated from their own labor. They're no longer connected to the whole thing of planting the seed, of sowing the seed, of tilling the land, of harvesting the food, of making the shoe, of making of making the shirt. You know, they're now alienated from their labor. They're just doing something, and they're doing it for somebody else. The profits are accruing to the factory owners and not to the people who are doing the labor. Okay, so this this technical, concrete changes in socioeconomic structure connected to modernity, that is modernization. That is embodied in industrialization. That, for Marx, is the key factor. Okay, so the context for the Communist Manifesto, um, which is going to come out in 1848, which is this year called the springtime of nations in Europe, which is a kind of miraculous year where there are all sorts of revolutions in all different places throughout Europe. And it's a moment of the coming together of liberalism and nationalism. The idea being that if individuals have individual identity and therefore should, produce, should possess certain kinds of natural, political, and civic rights, then so do nations. Um, so do do then so all of these different peoples, for instance, who were living in the context of the Habsburg Empire. You know, should the, the Hungarians have their own nation? The Czechs have their own nation. The Romanians, the Serbs, their own nation. So it's the springtime of nations. All of these different uprisings, um, attempts at revolution in different places in, in Europe. Um, AJP Taylor sarcastically calls this the turning point at which history failed to turn um, because most of them get put down. But something is in the air. You know, this idea of nationalism of national rights, of nations being created as almost kind of animate entities with souls, the influence of Heritor. This comes up in 1848. So almost in a moment when nobody is paying attention, you get the Communist Manifesto, um, co-authored by Marx and Engels. Critical influences on the Communist Manifesto, what will make it make sense. The first is Enlightenment thought, the rights of man, The second is German Romantic philosophy, especially Hegel, um, History with a capital H. And the third is a kind of political economy understanding of industrialization. So those things all come together in the Communist Manifesto. Um, Now, it's not a difficult text to read, but I'm going to try to walk you through the, the main points, nonetheless. Published in February 1848. The first move is to say, we're going to turn Hegel on his head. Turning Hegel on his head does not mean history's moving backwards. Turning Hegel on his head for Marx and Engels means you move from the realm of the ideal to the realm of the material, from the realm of the abstract and the metaphysical to the realm of the concrete. And concrete and material are also going to be crucial words for Marx. Again, they don't seem like special words, but they're going to become special words in the context of Marx's philosophy. Um, Instead of Geist, Marx is going to see socioeconomic forces. The idea is that, you know, Hegel is mistakenly reifying consciousness. German philosophy needs to come down from the sky, abandon metaphysics in favor of concrete reality, move from the realm of the spirit to the realm of the material. Um, There's a quote by Engels where he says, the Hegelian dialectic needs to be placed upon its head or rather turned off its head on which it was standing and placed upon its feet. Um, you know, Marx later in the afterward to the second German trad- edition of Das Kapital says, "The mystification which dialectic suffers in Hegel's hands by no means prevents him from being the first to present its general form of working in a comprehensive and conscious manner. With him, with Hegel, the dialectic is standing on its head. It must be turned right side up again if you would discover the rational kernel within the mystical shell. Okay, so some of you might remember from other European history courses when Martin Luther posted those 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany in 1517. This is one of those moments when the Communist Manifesto comes out. It's not that you know, it comes out one day in February 1848 and everything is different the next day. You know, it's a little bit of like a bomb with a long fuse. <laughs> but it's there, you know, and once it's there, you know, there's no going back. No. The Communist Manifesto is both... It's, it's both a theory and a philosophy of history, a political manifesto connected to that philosophy of history, and a prediction a prophecy. And one of the things that's very Hegelian about it is that there's going to be no distinction between what will happen and what should happen, between this understanding of history and this prediction about where it's going. The manifesto begins with this very famous line, a specter is haunting Europe, the specter of communism. Um, now, the first thing I want to note is that this, the specter, the ghost, is not the Geist. It, it's das Gespenst. It's a different word in German, so it's it's distinct from Hegel's Geist. It's actually a ghost. So the ghost that is haunting, the ghost that is haunting Europe, is also distinct in that it's not a ghost from the past. It's a ghost from the future. A specter is haunting Europe. The specter of communism. The specter to come. Um, it's a model, it's a structure for how to understand history in which the relevant factors are economic relations, distribution of the means of production, and class antagonism. The actors here that are relevant are not individuals but classes. And class is also going to become a key word. You know, what is your socioeconomic class? In particular, are you a worker, are you a member of the proletariat, or are you a member of the bourgeoisie? Are you someone who is working and being exploited, or are you the employer who is exploiting the labor of others? This is the relevant relationship. And the critical identity for Marx and Engels is the identity of social class. The history, they write, of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. History is all about oppressors and oppressed. That antagonism, that class conflict, plays itself out in different forms, in different historical epochs. Now we are coming to the modern moment of the great struggle between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, and this is going to be the last great conflict. You know, so we've moved through feudalism. We've moved through the nobility and the peasantry that's dying out. We're already kind of almost past that. Again, the fact that Marx considers us past that is very contingent upon the fact that he spent his life in the tiny part of the world you know, that's been significantly industrialized. Okay. The history of all existing society is the history of class struggles. Just as feudalism gave way to capitalism and modern bourgeois society, capitalism and modern bourgeois society contains within itself the seeds of its own destruction. This is the idea of containing within oneself the seeds of one's own destruction, something containing within itself the seeds of its own destruction. This is central to Hegel and central to Marx. History moves by dialectics. History moves by this constant process of something being confronted with something that is antagonistic, antithetical, that is coming up against it, that's going to replace it, that's going to take it to a higher level. And so the famous line here is, you know, what the bourgeoisie therefore produces above all are its own gravediggers its fall and the victory of the proletariat are equally inevitable. So in this model of history, capitalism. So capitalism involves industrialization. It also involves moving from a barter economy to a money economy. You know, And that's also very significant. So now you're looking at money as this means of exchange. You're no longer saying, oh, look, I have some corn, and can I exchange my corn for your bread? Or can I exchange my bread for your shoes? Or like, now we're going into a money economy. Um, There's also something that Marx is going to call capital. Capital is money, but not just any money. Capital is not the money you take to the store to buy coffee or the money you take to the store to buy apples. Capital is money that is invested to make more money. Um, That's what's significant about it. So this idea of money almost becoming fetishized, the bourgeoisie collecting and accumulating capital for the purpose of making more money. Okay. So capitalism is naturally producing exploitation because people are selling their labor by the hour. They are doing something repetitive. They don't own the products of their labor, and they're not even connected to the products of their labor. They are alienated from the products of their labor. They're not the farmer, and they're not the shoemaker. You know, they don't get the thing that's produced at the end. They've only done some one little part of it, and every, all the profits are accruing to somebody else. Capitalism is leading to alienation, therefore from the products of their labor, and alienation from the self, because you are selling yourself by the hour. You're selling yourself like a thing. It's leading to exploitation and alienation. In this Marxist vision, as they lay it out, as Marx and Engels lay it out in the Communist Manifesto, this state of affairs that capitalist industrialization leads to, inevitably, alienation and exploitation, you know, in which relations that should be relations among people are turned into relations among things driven by a profit incentive, you know, and human beings are turned into commodities and thought of as things you know, and not as people. You see some Kantian influence here too as well, right? You always treat a person as an ends so and not as a means. Um, all of that is eventually going to lead to the development of class consciousness. Class consciousness is almost a technical term for Marx. Class consciousness means when the workers understand that they are being exploited by the bourgeoisie, And they understand that there is no way to fix this without all of the workers everywhere in the world rising up, violently overthrowing the bourgeoisie, abolishing private property, ruling through a transitional period of a proletarian dictatorship, which is necessary because the bourgeoisie is not going to voluntarily give up its property. But then eventually, they will create a society you know, in which national borders will wither away. Everyone will work according to his ability and receive according to his need. And then we will be at the end of history in this utopian communist world. I realize it sounds crazy, like lots of you are kind of smirking. Um, this was the vision. These things are supposed to happen organically. You are, the workers are supposed to organically develop class consciousness. Um, you know the central the central moments here. You know are the rising up over the over the bourgeoisie, the, the abolition of private property, which you see. There's a kind of Rousseauian influence here too. Private property is a kind of sin, is, is evil. Um, uh, the, eventual abolition of national borders, and the idea that eventually everyone's going to work according to their ability and receive according to their need. Um, There's a prophesizing of internationalism, um, something vaguely like what we might now call globalization, where they say in the manifesto, the working men have no country. We cannot take from them what they have not got. So there's an internationalist element. Um, You cannot turn to religion. Religion is the opiate of the masses. For Marx and Engels, religion is something you dangle out in front of people like a drug to encourage them to accept their own suffering and exploitation by promising them some reward in the kingdom to come. Okay. Um, Alienation then takes on these very concrete forms. The the fragmentation of the process of production is leading to the fragmentation of of human beings, of its subject. Um, The alienation of the process of production is leading to the self-alienation of workers. It's also, Marx says, leading to the self-alienation of the bourgeoisie, but they don't mind, they're happy, they're making money. Um, A couple other terms I want you to know. Base and, and superstructure. Um, are kind of crucial here. Um, For Marx, base is everything that relates to the socioeconomic structure. Are you a worker or are you a factory owner? What is your position in the economic structure? That's the base. Superstructure is art, culture, consciousness, thinking, everything else. Fundamentally for Marx, the base is determinate and the superstructure is derivative. So what determines how you think is your position in the socioeconomic order. Everything else is derivative. Consciousness is derivative. If you are, you know, a factory owner, you have bourgeois consciousness. If you are a worker, you will develop class consciousness because your consciousness is derivative of your objective position in the socioeconomic order. Okay, I have two minutes left, so let me give you the um, The socioeconomic base determines consciousness. Your position in the economic order determines how you think. Human nature is not innate, it's not inherent, It's situational. It is determined by your position in the socioeconomic order. There's a complete conflation here of the will and the should. What will happen is what should happen. You know, the workers will understand. They will come to class consciousness. They will understand that they're being exploited, and they will understand that there is no way to solve one problem without solving them all they must rise up and violently overthrow the bourgeoisie. You know, When they come to that, they will reach this magical moment when Marx says all that is solid melts into air, all that is holy is profaned, and man is at last compelled to face with sober senses his real conditions of life and his relations with his kind. And then he ends the manifesto. The communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare that these ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. Let the ruling classes tremble at a communist revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries unite. These will become legendary lines. Um, So you see here the categories of determinism and the categories of totality. You also see that the proletariat, you know, in this ideology, this philosophy of history, is the class predestined to lead us to the promised land. It's the class predestined to lead the revolution. In classical Marxism, this will happen inevitably. You know, the proletariat will come to class consciousness, they will get together, they will understand they need to overthrow the bourgeoisie. This will all happen organically. So this then raises the question, this is what I want to leave you with, so don't you then, aren't, oh, don't you have a like Calvinism-like problem? So the Calvinists believe that you're either kind of predestined to be saved and go to heaven or you're not. So that then begs the question, why not just sit back? why go to church? If it's all out of our hands, why do anything? If it's all going to happen of its own accord, why act? So this, what happened, why then do we need to act if this is what will inevitably happen if the proletariat will naturally come to class consciousness, this then will be the crucial problem that Lenin steps in to solve. And we'll talk about that in another week or so. Original recording and editing by Guy Ordeliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.